Every incident of high-intensity behavior has a number of associated costs that negatively impact the school. Like an iceberg where the tip is in clear view, some of these costs are immediately evident. But like an iceberg, most of them are hidden from immediate view. For example, behaviors like fighting may come at the expense of time, paperwork, injury, low morale, retention, staff and student performance, and ultimately, student achievement. We at PCMA are dedicated to supporting education by providing the safest, most effective, and humane crisis management solutions in the world. For more info, check out crisisintervention.com. Welcome to the Crisis in Education podcast, where educational leaders and experts across the world dissect the root causes of issues and explore potential opportunities for sustainable improvement across schools and districts. And now your co-hosts, Dr. Polly and Drew. All right. Welcome to the Crisis in Education podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Polly. We're here with Drew Carter, my co-host. Drew, how you doing, brother? I'm doing well. How are you, Polly? I'm fine, man. Drew, Drew and I got to spend some time in California at a conference recently and hang out and see some very cool people. Um, I missed my freaking plane on the way back, man. It was terrible. And I didn't miss it. It was like, canceled. Have you ever had that happen to you? Uh, multiple times. Yeah. Especially uh, in the Midwest, North Chicago, it's, Minnesota. It's never a good time. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like it's always the worst time for it to happen. Cause I just wanted to come home and then I had to stay over there. And oh man, I, I ended up finding the closest hotel and it was like, it was in the hood and not that I can't survive in the hood, but I'm, I'm getting bougie as I'm getting older, brother. Like <laughs> I'd like want fine like hotels and stuff like that. You know, <laughs> I do. <laughs> yeah, man. Exactly, man. Exactly. Anyway. So, Hey, we are, and I'm, I mean this in every way, like very fortunate to have uh, Andrew Keita on. And uh, Andrew is actually a guy I met uh, from uh, Morningside Academy. Um, and, uh, you know, those who aren't familiar with Morningside, you are going to be shocked because they guarantee, I think at least I, I think they still guarantee that their students will double their academic learning within one year. Is that still true, Andrew? That's it. Yeah. Yeah. Two years growth in one year in your area of greatest need or your money back. Uh, wow. Who, who does that? I can't wait. That might be the, the title of this podcast when, when it, <laughs> because it's incredible. So uh, anyways, welcome to the show, Andrew. Thanks for yeah, joining thanks us. Thanks for having me. Yeah, brother. So um, what, give us just a little bit about your history. You don't got to go too deep into it, man, but like how you got where you're at right now, you know, uh, et cetera. Something so the audience gets to know you. Yeah, sure. So um, actually, I was a journalist. So I went to school to be a sports writer. And I spent, you know, a little time doing that. I'm from I'm from Ohio. So I was covering Ohio State football and minor league baseball and summer league baseball. And, you know, you hard to believe, but journalists do not make a lot of money. Uh, I mean, not the teachers do either, which we can we can definitely get into that today. But uh, so my, I grew up in a family where my mom was a school teacher. So I was, you know, writing in the afternoons when you do sports writing work. I was like, I got to make some more money. So I was looking for any job. So I took a sub sub job working with kids with autism. I knew nothing about autism. Um, I mean, I knew a little bit about teaching and that was about it. I got thrown in and pretty quickly fell in love with the work. And I got lucky enough at the school I was working with, um, uh, an amazing place called Hogland Learning Center, which is in Columbus, Ohio. Uh, they sent me out to Morningside. They were like, hey, you seem to really get this. Why don't you go learn about this generative instruction model? And come back and teach us all about it. And so I came out to Seattle uh, 15 years ago at this point, and 
I was hooked. I spent three summers in Morningside Summer Institute, and I was like, this is what I'm doing forever. And uh, yeah, that's, that's where I've been on that road for the last 15 years. Well, I'll tell you, uh, Drew, I got to meet Andrew and the crew up there, uh, Dr. Kent Johnson, uh, a couple years back when we brought the Morningside Way into uh, the, the, uh, the clinical and the school that I was a COO at. And uh, first of all, they're very good people, very cool people. And it's not just talk. It's not yeah. just talk. And when I saw what they were doing, I dug further into the research and I'd actually heard about Morningside Academy a couple years before when I got an internship at through Aubrey Daniels International. They actually had literature in their organization there. I'm like, what is this? Oh, my God, man, this is what? It's amazing, man. And so, like, I can't wait, wait for you to share this stuff. But I just want to say this, that, you know, education is in crisis. And in, in, in from probably your eyes and my eyes who understand what you're about to discuss, it's been in crisis for a long time because there is a, definitely a better way. I mean, we have, there's over 130,000 schools. There's 3.2 million teachers and 19.4, in the last that I just checked, students around the country. And none of them are guaranteeing the very few schools, you know, 0.0001 schools across the nation are guaranteeing that their schools are going to make double the gains in a year. Nobody's doing that. But the technology exists to do it. When I say technology, I don't mean software. I don't mean software. And, you know, right now, teachers are struggling. Like, what I'm seeing is, like, a lot of turnover. I'm seeing behavior issues popping up. And, you know, like, for, for one of the first and most important things you can do as, a, as an educator is provide engaging instruction at your student's skill level or a little bit beyond it so that it's a challenge for them. That is your best strategy for reducing misbehavior in the classroom. It was, what, what other things are you seeing out there, Andrew? Have you been in some of these schools lately or hearing some yeah. things? Yeah, I mean, we're, we're talking to schools more now than probably if we have in the last five or six years. And I think I think that the pandemic has exacerbated a lot of the things that were already out there that we saw, and they've just made them that much more obvious. Um, you know, I'm, I'm with you. It's, teachers are overwhelmed and they're burnt out, and it's a function of there is way too much put on schools. You know, schools have to do everything, right? It's like we continue to invest less and less in communities. And the schools are the ones caught doing everything, right? Feeding kids three meals a day, taking kids before school, after school. Like they're doing everything, let alone the tricky work of instruction, right? Instruction is not easy work to do. Like it's a, it, it's a lot of effort. Um, it takes a lot of people working really heavily together. And when you're, when you're, you know, when you're pulled to do 15, 16 jobs rather than the two or three you're supposed to do really well, it makes it really hard. So you know, I think I think one of the biggest things that we see, we've always seen this, and we see it more than ever, is that you know kids don't come into schools with the same repertoires. You know, that'd be if, if that was the case, that'd be great. That'd make life for teachers so much easier if you had fifteen or twenty or thirty kids in a classroom and they all came in with the same skill set. Teaching would be much easier. It wouldn't be simple. Right? It definitely would not be easy, but it would make life much much easier. But instead, if you're a t teacher in the U.S., you're getting kids with a massive range of skills. So like, how do you do that work well? How do you teach 25 kids well when you've got kids, you know, really with skills that, that range three to four grade levels in terms of what the kids can do? Um, so, you know, one of the things that we do and that we're huge proponents of is what's called homogeneous achievement grouping, which means that we don't put kids in, in their classes in Morningside based on what age or grade they're in, right? So that's the big thing. We Right away, we look at when kids come to Morningside, they spend two weeks with us. Uh, before they ever get put into a classroom and we find out what they can do and what they can't do 
And then we form classes based on those things. So kids are in mixed age classrooms based on the instruction they actually need. And that allows the teachers to teach to those kids, right? The teachers don't have to worry about how they organize a lesson for six groups of kids. They teach to one group of kids. And I mean, the research on that is, is amazing. You can keep the same curriculum you're using, right? Whether or not it's a good curriculum or bad curriculum, same teaching procedures you're using, whether or not those are good teaching procedures or bad teaching procedures. And kids in general make about a year's growth per year. Right. So you want to keep kids on track, just get them in groups based on what they can do and what they can't do. And that alone gets you so much further down the road than what schools do. So, you know, our, our system of grouping kids by how old they are is just shooting ourselves in the, in the foot constantly. We work even harder. Andrew, what's the largest age gap you've had in one classroom? Uh, about two to three years. Um, oh, wow. Norm. You know, we occasionally will have groups that could be larger than that. Um what we what we tend to do is if we've got you know we've got a kid who comes in who's in seventh grade and they're reading at like a second grade level or a third grade level, um, we'll try to form a group of similar kids right. There's, we will get those corrective reading kids we call them. Um, you know, occasionally there's an outlier there where they're significantly further you know they're older than the rest of the kids in their group, and we'll level with the kid and say, look, you know, this is the spot for you. Uh, we know it's not with kids your your age or your grade, but um, here's why it's important for you to be in this this, this classroom and get this instruction. You know, we're actually hamstrung by the fact that, you know, we've got 85 kids in our laboratory school here in Seattle, so ages uh, roughly 9 to 15. So, you know, the smaller the school, the harder it is to do homogeneous achievement grouping because you got less kids to draw from. Mm. And when we go and work with public schools that have two, three, four hundred kids in a school, it's much easier, right? It's a lot easier to find similar groups kids. So the larger, like, the larger the setting that you do homogeneous achievement grouping, what you find is that that gap in age is much, much smaller. It's usually a couple of years. Um, yeah. You know what, one of the things that we find here is that like the kids never really care. You know, I think that's, that's always a concern and parents in particular. And I, I get it. Like parents are like, well, my kid's older. Are they going to feel embarrassed? My kid's younger. Are they going to hear things they shouldn't hear? Totally valid concerns. Um, what we find is that the kids don't really care. Well, it sounds so, like you set that up, you know, yeah. you give them the why to begin with, which again is just good behavior analysis you know, make it socially valid for them and, you know, guide them with the, with some knowledge that's going to help them. So that's fantastic, man. So, so can you in, in, let's talk about what regular instruction looks like right now in schools, right? Normal instruction and let's shift to, so there's a clear, people understand the clear difference about what you're about to talk about. What do they, how do they normally teach in school? What's it look like? Yeah, sure. So typical classroom, let's, let's say you've got 25 kids. Um, you know, you've got a kid, let's, let's, a typical classroom probably has three to four groups of kids within that classroom, right? Groups, I mean, kids with similar skill sets. Um, and the, any good teacher in the U.S., what you see the minute you go into a classroom is they figured that out, right? So we throw all these kids into a classroom and a good teacher immediately says, I can't deliver the instruction to all these kids at once. Or the kids who are the higher performers, they're going to get nothing, right? It's going to be below what they already know how to do. The kids who are the lower performers, it's going to go right over their head. So those teachers end up mixing and matching, right? So they end up setting up groups. And the teachers, you know, teachers in America, I'm always amazed at how uh, organized they are, the amount of work they put in to like set up really good differentiated instruction. And the teachers going from group to group and they're doing tailored instruction for those groups of kids based on what they need. But you just do the math. You've got four groups in a classroom. You've got an hour reading block. The teacher gets to each group equally. It's 15 minutes per group. Right. So just the math alone, 15 minutes per group versus if you have all the kids at the same level, 60 minutes, the entire time would be dedicated to one group of learners. 
just you're getting four times as much instruction every day, you know, multiply that over 170 some school days. And you can kind of see why you get such dramatic results just from groupings based on what they can and can't do. Right. You know, because the, they're challenged with teaching to the mean there. So they try to break them up. Um, but you can't, you can't be everywhere at one time looking at things. And that's why one of the great things that you do is a form of self-monitoring and self-management is built in to the, to the processes there. Um, so, all right. So um, in the outcomes, obviously they're not great. It's not that no schools have success, um, but I know that there's, you know, um, there's a, there's been a, a difference, a divide between how students should be taught and i don't know this this is the right time to speak about it or not but it's this constructivist model versus a behaviorist model okay. um and uh well why don't maybe should we talk about that now or maybe revisit it as we you after you explain what happens that morning side what do you think uh, it's gonna be easiest for people to digest i let me talk i can talk a little about morning side and what we're doing uh in terms of that conversation because so we have a new, uh, a new book out called The Morningside Model of General Instruction, Building a Bridge Between Inquiry and Skills Teaching. And what we're trying to do in that book and what we try to do at Morningside is find the middle ground, right? Because we don't think it's as black and white as- Inquiry being constructivist. Inquiry, yeah, being similar to what okay. a constructivist would teach. So in a constructivist setting, which is most schools in America, um, what, we're, what teachers are looking to do is they want kids to construct meaning and construct new repertoires from the things they're doing, right? So we're going to give kids real-world challenges. That's what a public school is going to do. We're going to set up group learning. We're going to set up uh, all kinds of what would seem like more authentic learning experiences. And from that, the kids will be more, this is all the theory, right? The kids will, in theory, be more engaged because these are more authentic learning experiences, not just something some teacher sets up. Um, and from engaging in those experiences, they expect the kids will skills that they need to be able to be successful in those, uh, those endeavors, and that the kids will construct new meaning. And what we find is that in practice, like that really sounds nice, but in practice, what that means is kids with the skills that they already need to be successful in those activities thrive. Kids who lack those skills and lack those underlying prerequisite skills struggle. Let me, let me just for, let me just make a sports analogy for, for people that's like uh, somebody coming into my boxing or mixed martial arts gym and deciding what kind of like what they're engaged to wanting to learn. And then they get into like the cage and a ring to spar and they're going to take a beating because fundamental to all those things that you want to do, there are some fundamental pivotal skills that you need to learn. If you're going to be sick, fine. You want to learn how to be a great striker. Cool. You can do that, but you need to know this stuff first. You want to be good at jujitsu. Fine. Cool. But you need to learn these fundamentals. Then you can be successful with those things when you try them. But if you don't have those fundamental skills, you're not going to learn or you're, or you're going to learn accidentally, or you're going to take a beating and not want to learn anymore. Right. Is that, you think that's a good analogy, Andrew? Uh, I think that's right on. I, so I think what, what we always say is we want to kind of flip that paradigm upside down. So we're, we're going to do what we call engineering discovery learning, or we're going to engineer the kids repertoire so that they can engage in all of that stuff that, that, uh, the constructivist model would want to teach because frankly it's more fun like to, in the defense of constructivists you watch that lesson you go into a classroom and you watch a teacher doing a discovery learning lesson where it's a lot of discussion and the kids are jumping in and participating and making connections it's more fun and it looks good like we always talk to people it's more aesthetically pleasing like i i get it i get the draw of it um, what we want to do is just build the kids performances so that they can be in those settings and they can participate and have fun and and have those discovery meetings because there's a ton of reinforcement in discovery. 
right? That's one thing that we know that, you know, when kids do something for the first time without being taught, like we call aha moments, you see it all the time. Kids will, will watch them like kind of labor through a problem and they're like, oh, oh, I got it. And it's like that moment of I figured it out. That is a such, such a, uh, a, a strong reinforcer. And so we want to we want to arrange for that. Right. So rather than kind of just leaving it up to chance that we're going to give you some challenging problem and you'll figure it out like, well, we're going to we're going to engineer it. Right. So we're going to say, what are all the skills that you need in order to do that thing that I didn't, don't have to teach you? If I teach you all those skills, then I can set up the environment in such a way that all those repertoires combine and recombine and you're going to do it on your own without me having to teach you how to do it. Right. So kids are successful and it's a more efficient teaching. Right. It's really it's an efficient model. That's really what our model of instruction is. It's about efficiency. Right. I think you I think tackling that uh, you, I think tackling that issue with the, the without saying it's bad. Right. Constructivist, because that's been the divide, you know, one against another. You, you can't do that. You have to say what's good about it, why it's good, but how this is going to help that be better. Right. That's kind of what I yeah. hear you saying. Yeah, 100 like percent. We'll, we'll watch what are the activities that classroom teachers are doing that are successful for some kids, but not successful for too many kids, right? And those are our kids. So we, the, the population of kids at our lab school here, we call them the, the forgotten 40%, right? So if you, if you know about like an RTI model in education, so response intervention is really popular in American schools. And that's excellent because that's a really good model. But essentially in an RTI model, you've got kind of three tiers of intervention. You've got kids who are in your tier one intervention. And those are your general ed kids who don't need much. They get the general curriculum, general teaching procedures, probably population, those kids are doing really well. You've got your tier three kids who are your kids who have more severe and profound disabilities or learning challenges. They tend to get special education services, one-on-one -on -one services. That's something that we always say that, you know, behavior analysts have kind of dominated that corner for, for you know, the last 10 to 15 years. And then there's that tier two. And those are those kids who um, are struggling in the general education setting, but they also don't need the intensity of intervention that you get in a tier three special education setting, right? They can learn in a group. Uh, they should learn in a group setting. They can be successful without one-on-one -on -one intervention. And they're, they're kind of the kids who, um, you know, like they're the, they're the kids who don't like school. You, I mean, you know them as adults, right? Didn't like school, struggled through, did okay, or, or not even so okay. Um, but there's no reason why they shouldn't be successful in schools. And so that's our population. So we look at what are the things that do work for those tier one kids and that are, you know, are interesting to teachers how do we teach that to our kids? So, you know, inquiry is a big one. That's something we're focusing on a lot right now. How do we teach kids how to be good at the process of inquiry? And really all that means is how do you bring the scientific method to bear on everything in your life, right? Not just, not just in a science experiment with beakers, buns and burners, but like, how do you bring the scientific method to figuring out this math on time? How do you have better relationships with the kids at your lunch table? How do you not get in fights with your parents? How to, I mean, it's a laundry list of things, right? But it's so pivotal we, behavior. That's it's right. So, behavior. so that's a repertoire we can teach, right? Inquiry doesn't have to be this kind of thing that a constructivist teacher talks about. And we all kind of say, well, we don't know what that means. So we can teach it. We can teach kids how to recognize issues in their environment or problems in their environment, how to use the steps of the scientific method to come up with possible answers uh, and then how to solve a problem. So that's a big part of what we do here is, you know, bringing, you know, bringing our behavior analytic lens to procedures out there that we see in education that are successful to quasi successful. I'm like, well, we can fix that a little bit. We know, how, we know enough about instructional design. We know enough about reinforcement that we can take a 
mediocre program or even a decent, you know, a better than mediocre program, we can make it really, really good and help a lot of kids while doing so. So I think we'll probably like tease the, the listeners enough, right? So there's like, all right, this sounds amazing. What does it look like, right? Compared to, you know, the average class, you talked about what that looks like. You break them up in small groups, they walk around, you know, it's, it's taught to the mean in general. Then what is, what is your, the morning side model look like if somebody were to walk in, what are they seeing and how is it? Yeah. I'd like to jump in here too. I'm really curious about the two weeks that you spend doing what I'm assuming is an assessment to yeah. see what pivotal behaviors that they're currently lacking. Sure. Right. Yeah, so I'll talk about both those things. So there's really five big elements to the Morningside model, right? It's like, if you want to do this model, you got to have these five things. Uh, the first one is that homogeneous achievement grouping. So grouping kids by uh, what, they can, what they can and can't do. So that two weeks, kids come in the Morningside, and they, it's, a, it's, a, yeah, it's a wider range of assessments. Some of those are like standardized tests that we get. And we get those data mostly so we can have some good pre-post data and talk to families about all the great things their kids are learning. Mostly, though, it's assessment data uh, coming from placement tests. So we and that kind of jumps into our second of those big five things you need in the morning side model, which is uh, empirically validated curricula based on component skills. So what that means is we're not going to go and teach the things that fourth graders learn because they're fourth graders. We're going to learn, teach the kids all the components they need to be successful later on when they get to the program. Can you explain to people differentiate between component skills, composite skills, and I forget what the first skill is. Yeah, so tool, component, composite. Yeah. Um, You know, it's it's a, I always think of it as a pyramid, right? The the composite skill being the most complex skill that you're trying to teach at the top of kind of a pyramid. Um, So let's say, for example, I want to teach kids how to do uh, computation of whole numbers. So just adding multi-digit numbers. Right. Well, before I can do that, there's a series of component skills. That's kind of like the level down. Right? There's multiple component skills in a given composite skill. So I want to learn how to l- add lists of numbers. Well, I got to learn my. I got to know how to add simple math facts. I got to know how to write my numbers really clearly. I need to know the algorithm for doing a uh, a multi-digit addition problem. All right. So those are my comp- my uh, component skills. And then below my components are tool skills, and those are even more basic level skills. So for something like, let's just take one of the components I mentioned. So I mentioned uh, writing numbers. All right, well, what are all the things I have to do to be able to write numbers? Well, I got to know what the numbers are. I got to be able to make all of the, the various types of marks that you would make to write a number, like a vertical line, a horizontal line, a circle. Mm-hmm. Got to be able to hold a pencil, right? And these can go back endlessly. So what skill is a tool, a component, or a composite is constantly changing as a function of the learner's repertoire. So something that's a composite, like mastering multi-digit addition, once the kids know that, that's no longer a, a composite skill. And now it's a component skill for something more complex, right? Like, like solving a word problem in which I have to do multi-digit addition, right? So these skills combine on top of themselves over and over and over again. So we focus on that tool and component level. That's really what, what, our, what our instructions are oriented to is... Um, you know, Ken Johnson, our founder, has this saying that I like. He says, it's all about seeding the repertoire, right? Like, we're going to grow all this really wide range of skills on which new skills can combine. So those more complex things aren't complex anymore. So we always say that, you know, teaching, teaching someone algebra should be easier to, than teaching someone how to count for the first time. Because if you've done it right, you've got so much behavior to draw on. Algebra is just the next step. It's just a simple step. But teaching a kid for the very first time how to count when they don't have much skills that you're drawing on that's a lot harder. So that's what I mean when I say components, right? These 
these, what are these fundamental building block repertoires that the students need to be good academic learners? Good. Um, so we assess those components using a variety of placements. And those are tests looking out there, data behind is make excellent gains. And the programs that we draw on the most are what a lot of behaviors are of our direct instruction programs. Um, so direct instruction being programs that are often scripted, although not always scripted, but they have a really clear sequence of objectives that are taught. And the most important aspect of those programs for us is that they teach to mastery. So that kid, what, what we hold constant is accuracy, right? So that's another difference between us in a, in a typical school. Most schools hold time constant. Like, hey, the calendar says March. We got to teach this thing because it's March and it's time to teach it. And we say, no, we're not, we don't, I mean, we care about time. We want to be efficient, but what we care about is mastery. And that means, you know, 90 to 100% accuracy on every single thing we're teaching before we move on to the next objective. That's the American way, by the way, isn't it? That's the way work goes. People right. are being paid based on time, not accomplishments right. within that time. That's right. hundred uh, percent. It's a, it's a, yeah, we set that standard early in schools and we stick to it for far too long. <laughs> right. And we're much more about accomplishments. Right. So that, that's what we're, we're oriented to. So we assess the kids, you know, using placement tests based on the curriculum that we that we've selected. Um, once they're in those groups, then we teach them with those direct instruction principles. And what that looks like, if you came into a Morningside classroom, it's really active. So teachers up in front, teachers uh, is either demonstrating what the, how to do a new skill or, or, or study something new. Um, once they've demonstrated it, then they guide the children through it or lead them through it. So there's a lot of call and response. So teachers are prompting, kids are answering, and it's all, we do a lot of choral responding, which means that you're going to see a bunch of kids all answering together at one time. So I might be up there in the front of the classroom and I'll say, okay, we're going to learn how to add uh, columns of digits today. So when we do a multi-digit addition problem, what column do we start in? Get ready. Teacher like snaps or claps. And the kids will say, we start in the ones column. I'll say, yeah, good, ones column. Okay, what do we do next? So all the kids are participating at once. So what we're doing is we're seriously ratcheting up the amount of response opportunities that the kids have in a given day. Um, I remember reading something once that the, like an average kid in a public school setting, or not just public school, but just a general ed setting, gets something like seven to 10 direct uh, interactions with a teacher a day. So like one day, like they're going to respond and have feedback given to them, whether the answer is right or wrong, seven to 10 times a day. Um, our kids are getting anywhere from, I don't know, five to 20 per minute. Uh, once That's what the research says. Four yeah, to, six, four to six per minute for uh, to build fluency and like nine to 12 uh, for introducing like new new concepts. Or yeah, no, it's the other way around. Yeah. The way around, yeah. And what, I mean, you can't do that unless the kids are grouped uh, together based on what they can do. Otherwise, it falls apart. If I'm asking everyone what's the next step and we're all at different places in our learning, then we're not going to get the same answer. So it doesn't, it doesn't, you can't do that kind of instruction. You can't get that kind of response rate unless the kids are grouped homogeneously. So that's really important. So we use this uh, direct instruction model, and what we use what uh, uh, we use an instruction model called Methetics, uh, which was developed by Tom Gilbert, who's a behavior analyst and a OBM guy. Like, or, he's human competence man. I cite him right. all the time. I had yeah. no idea he he was the founder of Methetics. I love Thomas Gilbert's stuff. Yeah, so Tom wrote uh, the there's a two two issues of the Journal of Methetics in 1962, I think. So he was doing a lot of stuff on program instruction, which then led into the human competence work, which yeah, we, we love Tom's work uh, and a lot of stuff we do is based on that. So 
the this Methetics model, uh, it's it was then uh, kind of built on by uh, Siegfried Engelman and the people at the University of Oregon that developed the direct instruction model. And since then, that's kind of expanding. You see more of that in schools, and that's encouraging. So, you know, we talk about demonstrate, guide, test when we teach something. First, I'm going to show you it. Then I'm going to help you through it by slowly decreasing my amount of prompts. Then I'm going to test you on doing it yourself. Well, for the educators listening to this, this is your I do, we do, you do model. That's right. Anita Archer, who's an awesome, is an excellent direct instruction trainer, kind of took that framework and made it even more teacher friendly with the I do, we do, you do model. Um, so that's that's the base of everything we're going to teach that we know. So a lot of this, those skills that we're teaching is it's really generalized imitation training, right? At a much, it's seemingly more complex. It's like, hey, I'm the expert standing up here in front of you guys. I know how to make an inference when I read a story. So now I'm going to show you how to do it, and then you can do it, and you'll be an expert, and you'll be really smart like I am. Right, so we, I think oftentimes we think about these behavioral like principles like generalized imitation, and we think about it at, uh, at, at kind of basic skills, and you can do it with everything, right? If, if you can show a kid how to do it, then you can use this type of generalized imitation work, and that's what we do. And we use that, we, so we, we look for curricula that are built on those methodics or direct instruction principles, um, and we try to use those, but, but they're not always out there. So if we find programs that have really good data, but the instructional design isn't the way we would design something, then we look at that program and we tweak the design to make it work for us. So, um, you know, we're using in our math class, we're using a version of Singapore math called primary mathematics. And that is a program, you know, the data on Singapore math is excellent, um, but it's not a behavioral analytic program at all. It doesn't have any grounding in behavioral analytic instructional design, um, but the data is great. Right. So we're not going to say, well, it's not behavior analytics, it's not direct instruction. Therefore, we're not going to use it. Like we cast a very wide net. And if the data is compelling, the data is compelling. So we look at the data that we get from schools around the world and we're like, all right, we're going to learn this and we're going to we're going to change it and modify it and make it so it's a little more structured to make it more behavior. You shape it up in you shape it up. I mean, because direct instruction is the way is a delivery model. That's, right. so that's the curriculum. So you, whatever the, so the content is good, you're just, you're reshaping it to be delivered using direct instruction. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Gotcha. Okay. Um, yeah, go so ahead, man. You're killing it. No. Well, so, that, so that's, so those are, those are our first three steps, right? So it's assessment. Uh, it's assessment the book kids in homogeneous group, picking evidence-based curricula, uh, teaching those objectives in those curricula to mastery using a direct instruction model. And then the big thing that I think we're known for, certainly in the behavioral analytic community, is once skills are accurate, then the fourth thing we do is we build them to fluency using precision teaching. And that is a big part of our day. And that is, that is one thing that looks very different than if you go to most schools around the country. So precision teaching is a really a measurement system, um, but it's a way to, to measure the, the what we call the acceleration or kind of the, the, the trend in which kids increase their, their, their rates of behavior. Um, using a tool called the standard acceleration chart. And we use that chart to make decisions every day, right? So, so this, more than anything else, it's a decision-making tool. So if you came into a classroom, what you'd see is once kids have learned something, they're doing timed practice on it. So there are timers all over Morningside. They're beeping constantly going off. Kids run their own timing groups. They're doing practice on math facts, on digit writing, on computation, on oral reading, on handwriting, writing paragraphs. Like you name a skill, once we can teach it to accuracy, then we put timers on and kids practice it until it becomes second nature and automatic. And that's the goal of fluency. So the direct instruction people have got an awesome model for building the mastery, but we think that everybody out there stops too early. 
and this this goes, I mean, beyond just education, this goes into behavioral analytic practices um, with kids with autism and developmental disabilities. We stop at accuracy too frequently. We say, okay, I saw that kid could do this thing correctly. Great, the target's done. And like, we're like, ah, you're halfway there. Now it's time to build fluency, right? Because we want to make sure that that behavior is resistant, right? That's really what we're building up is highly resistant behavior. Behavior. We have, we have that model in our PCM program. We build awesome. fluency, man. People are exhausted by the time they get it, but they don't forget it. It's durable, you know, right. it's precise, right? Yeah. That's right. I mean, the end goal for fluency, I mean, yeah, it's about speeding up performance, but it's about speeding it up to what's the what's the optimal speed for that behavior in the real world. So sometimes the criticism is, well, you're just putting kids on timers and they're just racing. And we're like, no, that's, I mean, yeah, that does happen sometimes, right? That is a knock, that's a fair criticism of some fluency building. It's a reinforcer. They're challenged by that. I think it's a positive thing. But we also, you know, we're really aware that it's about how fast should the behavior occur naturally, right? It's not, we don't want to build up these strange arbitrary rates and have these kids racing around. It's like, how fast should you be able to do this? And what matters is that it's, the kids can perform something quick enough that it's maintained over time, right? So they can stop doing it, pick it up in a month or a year, and they can pick up at the same speed. They can do it for as long as they need to. They can do it with distractions. You know, it's great if you can add numbers, but if you can't do it in a crowded restaurant trying to calculate a tip, what's the, what's the, you know, who cares? And then for us, the big things is, are the, when the skills are fluent, what we see is that the kids can apply them to new contexts, new situations without any instruction. But okay, I can do this thing so quickly. Oh, I can do it over here. I can do it in this setting. I can do it in this setting. Um, and the other thing that we get, and this is our, this is that the whole model is oriented around is the kids can do them when they're fluent. They can combine those fluent skills with other fluent skills to come up with new behaviors that we never had to teach. Right. And that's the whole goal here. That's our kind of our fifth step is planning for uh, generative responding or spine that we don't teach, right? We arrange the environment and the kids, those, those behaviors that they've shown that they can do, those combine in all kinds of new ways and we get all kinds of novel learning. They're all, they're, it's, all, it's all pivotal stuff. You guys have right. determined what the pivotal stuff was. I wish they would have changed. I wish precision teaching was called precision assessment because people get confused at what it is because the word teaching. Now, certainly that like, you are learning from it uh, in in normal in regular public education or private as well, just, you know, they really, they would call that a formative assessment. And the problem with formative assessments is that it's the delay in it. I think a big part of it. Um, so, you know, if you're, if you're driving somewhere, I use the GPS as an example, the GPS is constantly giving you feedback. If you're in a city um, and you don't know where you're going and that feedback's only coming to you every 15, 20 minutes, you're going to get lost where you're going to continue in a direction you don't need to go. So this allows you through the, the frequent measurement uh, for the, the students to, you know, for the teachers to make decisions, but the students are, it becomes a reinforcer to them because they're constantly setting new goals, right? Yeah, that's, that's right on. I'm actually going to steal your GPS analogy. That's a really, that's a really good one. But you're, I mean, you're right. It's, you know, kids are, an average kid in Morningside has something like anywhere from five to 15 different skills they're doing fluency timings on. And so that's five to 15 uh, skills that we're getting, not just daily, we're getting multiple data points per day. And the teachers, and the ki- not just the teachers, but the kids le- have learned how to look at their data after every timing. And after every time they put a new dot on the chart, we say after every time you drop a dot, they have to, they make a decision. And the decision might be, I'm going to keep going and do more practice because I'm doing well. Uh, I might stop for the day because I already met my goal and I don't need to keep working on it. Or I might stop because I'm out of time and I need to rethink what I do. 
or the decision might be, I got to change something. And for the kids, that might mean I ask a teacher for help with an in, coming up with an intervention or ask my partner. Like we teach the kids how to come up with interventions. So the kids might say, mm, I'm falling below my, my rate for today or my, my acceleration line. I'm going to ask my partner, hey, do you notice anything about my performance that I could fix? And that's the, to your point, that's what's really important. Those formative assessments are happening daily, dozens and dozens of times, right? Um, you know, back to our learning guarantee conversation. We guarantee kids are going to make two years growth in one year or your money back, right? And, you know, we're a nonprofit private school. We rely on tuition. Like, we can't give money back. We, don't, we can't do that. So uh, we that can't doesn't be like that, man. No, no, no. It doesn't, no, it doesn't work that way. So, uh, you know, how do you do that? Like, how do you guarantee that? I think people are always like, are you, is there constant anxiety around here? And we're like, no, because we know what those May test data are going to look like way before we get there because we're making those decisions every single day, right? So those data at the end of the year that kind of say, did we make two years growth or not? Um, you know, those are, we, we know what we're going to get, right? And you do this combination of homogeneous grouping, constant, constant assessment uh, to your point of those daily formative assessments and then intervention immediately. And it's not, it's not that hard to get there. You know, it's much more common. The kids are making two and a half, three years gain than it is less than two years gain. What, let me ask you this. Um, what, it, what do the naysayers, because I actually did a, a, a video called the shame of American education. Of course, I was, you know, based off of some of uh, Skinner's work. Um, and we talk about direct instruction and, and precision teaching. And uh, for those that don't know, which most people don't probably don't know, there was a, there was research done called project follow through, and it was the largest scale research ever done in education. It was 10 years worth. And they came up with very conclusive evidence, nothing even compared to direct instruction, but also you know that when you look at it, they called one form of instruction behavior analysis, which it wasn't, it was a token economy. Direct instruction is rooted in behaviorism. You know, it's an approach that's very behavioral in nature, but so you have this, which and it started out a head start. They were trying to get the skills learned in Head Start to transfer. I was a product of Head Start. I came out of Head Start to get that's those right. to transfer into to the elementary school. And so they knew. Anybody that's listening right now, just Google project follow through. Go look at the images and look at the graphs. So the far left side, you're going to see how well direct instruction did with some basic skills, even with self-esteem, I think they were measuring and that's yeah. part of it. Yeah. It's amazing, but you cannot find this hardly anywhere it's 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 sad they have a program called cabas and i'm going to get this wrong comprehensive applied behavior analysis systems or something they get that right i'm screwing it up i screwed it up before um but they actually so people from the very top right the professors teach the teachers these the uh school leaders the parents everybody is involved in it they understand uh direct instruction and they tout four to six times accelerated rates right but then of course that's because everybody's involved in doing it so it's friggin' amazing project follow-through but what are the naysayers right i know it probably comes back to the constructive stuff in, in your experience why do people not want this what turns them off about it and what do you say to that yeah uh that's a really good question it's kind of a wide range you know there's there's the criticisms you hear that um, we don't think are all that valid. So there's the criticism of DI that it's too scripted, it's boring, it's too rote, it takes out teacher creativity, uh, and we we don't really find that to be the case. However, I mean, there's there's a point where that criticism gets is somewhat true as you get to more complex skills, right? And we get to more complex skills. The DI programs tend to, you know, really past late elementary. The DI programs 
when you get overly scripted, those programs rely on very specific answers. And that's not as useful as you get into more complex skills like generating essays or coming up with your own opinions. Then it's got to be a little bit more divergent. Um, so people like Anita Archer, uh, who did I do, we do, you do, um, and some other instructional designers who are behaviorally oriented ha have a really nice system that we use a lot called cognitive strategy instruction, which is kind of like a hybrid, right? It's like it's based on DI principles, but rather than having very clear answers, it's more we're going to teach kids a series of like guidelines or heuristics for how to do something like write an essay or um, participate in a group discussion. And so there's, there's bridges that we think are useful for people who get too stuck in that. Well, it's not very, you know, it's too rote to have teachers reading a script. So well, I'll tell you what, man, let me pause you right there for a second, because that's going to be people, maybe experienced teachers. I don't know what's like in other states, but we have a ton of teachers coming to the field that are out of field teachers. And mm -hmm. this stuff is foolproof, right? Why not give them this stuff? You know, so they can't make errors because they're learning on the job at the expense of their own mental health and right. the expense of the students learning, you know. And so kids are missing basic concepts because teaching, to your point, is extremely complex. So why not have all new teachers do this stuff? And if you learn, you know, throughout the years, the uh, the next approach that you're you're speaking about then right now and you want to add that in and you're still producing the outcomes, but whatever you're doing, it's still going to, you're going to find that direct instruction is going to produce those results. If your data is showing elsewhere wise, then you need to go back, you yeah, know, so I didn't mean to interrupt you. Yeah. hundred percent. And like, you know, I tend to find that at least in my experience in working and taking the Morningside model to schools all over the country is that I don't get a lot of criticism from teachers about DI, right? It's more from, from people in, in, you know, traditional departments of education and, and uh, school prep programs. It's not teachers. Teachers are looking for solutions. Yeah. Right? So you give them a DI program, like, oh, I get it. This is how I do it. And when you run that script, what we find is that teachers learn that underlying technology, that methodics, or we also call it little D, little I, direct instruction, right? The principles that inform the you know, the formal direct instruction program, teachers learn those. And then there they can those to teach all kinds of things, right. right? So it's not just about scripted programs. It's about what are those first principles of instruction? And so I don't find that criticism all that valid because, you know, direct instruction doesn't, it doesn't limit teacher creativity. You ever watch a DI classroom? Teachers are highly creative, right? It's a performance you're putting on you. It's not just sitting there reading a script in this like monotone voice. You're constantly back and forth with kids it's, and it's not like you read every word there's all these sections where teachers have to make decisions based on student responses so to your point i mean it gives teachers a framework and most teachers um you know new teachers in the field i think find it uh really helpful you know having a structured approach having a structured curricula where they're not the ones having to generate all the pages and pages of examples and non-examples and all the work like those programs the program should do that and so it makes their job easier 100 percent. what about behavior how does it impact behavior uh, you know, I think the biggest thing, one of the coolest things about DI is, so Engelman was not, Engelman, who's, when I talk about Engelman, he, so he's the designer of direct instruction, right? Um, he was an educator first and foremost, and he was interested in what's the perfect mode of communication between teacher and student, right? So he wasn't a behavior analyst, but he was, he's writing these really nice programs, well-designed, but he couldn't get the kids all together. Um, so he spent time with Wesley Becker, who was a behavior analyst. He said, let me, let me bring in some things that are going to make this work for you. And so all these things like responding on signal, constant praise and reinforcement for correct answers, and more importantly, in our opinion, for learning skills, things like how to locate where you are in the text, answering on signal, putting your eyes on whatever the instructional medium is, 
That all came out of behavior analysis. So it gives the teacher a framework to do the things that are really hard to do as a teacher uh, in terms of classroom management. So we, you know, we train teachers and we talk all the time about catch the kids being good. You know, we're not just trying to criticize all the things they do wrong. If that's easier said than done. You know, you got 25 squirrely kids in a classroom. It's and when they're finally doing the thing you want them to do, like sitting down or looking where they're supposed to look, teachers are just like, <laughs> I can probably breathe. And we're like, no, and this is the time where you got to be saying, hey, I love that you're in your seat. Hey, I like that you're answering on signal. But that's hard. That's really hard for a teacher to do. I, I get it. Um, I, I, I never know, quite I, understood the saying the squeaky wheel gets the grease until I got into this field because most of their effort is into the people that are disruptive, the people that are doing well or are getting ignored. And you're right at the end of it. Once everyone has met that goal, it's kind of a sigh of relief. It's a weight off people. Yeah. I mean, it's negative reinforcement, right? It's like perfect. So, you know, DI though gives you a framework because it helps it, those programs help identify those learning skill behaviors that kids need to have. So it gives you something you can praise right away. And it gives you a step into that world that, that, that we're all in on, right? Is this constructive behavioral approach of constructing all the repertoires we want kids to have, not just academic, how to be good learners, how to be good citizens, how to be well-organized, all those things that make them uh, more successful in school and outside of school. DI is a really nice way to get your foot into that world. So when they have those skills then, what are you seeing? So do you see an increase in engagement and then thus a, a reduction in disruptions? Yeah, 100%. Um, you know, we have no, we don't have to do any aversive control procedures at Morningside. Uh, our, our, our kids come to us, they're mostly kids, with a bunch of kids with ADHD, executive function disorders, uh, some disruptive classroom behavior, but nothing, I mean, we're not, we don't get kids with violent classroom behavior. Uh, but, you know, off task, disruptive sometimes. And our way to address it is to build repertoires so they're successful in school. So we shape up the academic repertoires. We shape up their interpersonal repertoires too. So we teach them things, you know, essentially functional communication. How do you ask for help? How do you ask for a breather? How do you articulate the problems you're having? How do you ask, you know, how do you ask for help academically? We have a lot of kids who they struggled in their previous setting and their response was either sit in the back of the room, put their hood up, try to hide as long as humanly possible or make a scene and get out of the classroom. Right? So how do you get around that? Well, you teach the kids to tell you what's wrong, for one thing, tell you what they're struggling with, but then you build up those repertoires so they don't need to engage in that behavior anymore. Drew, right? I'm telling you, man, when, uh, and they have people from all around the world, they have the opportunity like every year to spend a couple of weeks there during the summer interns and everything to see what's going on. Watching these kids drop a dot on the, if you see the, if you see the standard acceleration chart, it's a, uh, it's intimidating, it's, uh, so it's, but it's one of the reasons why <laughs> the educators get turned off by it. I'm like, let's this, let's shape this. Let's put it like a simpler looking thing at first, you know, so they're not turned off by it, but if they stick with it. When you understand it, it's like, wow, because you can, you know, you can predict where learning is going, but when the kids are dropping their own dots and they're seeing their self learning and they're seeing their goals that they're trying to hit because they set their goals uh, that they, you know, they have them all, all ready for them. Um, that becomes a powerful reinforcer, right? You don't have to sit around and give these guys Skittles or tokens or anything like that. Their own learning becomes a reinforcer, right? Naturally occurring yeah. through that process. Yeah, I, I love that they can review their own data in real time too. That is so important. Um, yeah, I mean that that review of the data is, is a way that we teach goal setting. Yeah. So goal setting is that's a hard thing to teach, and you know we have a lot of kids who come to us. They do a baseline assessment. You know, let's say it's a it's math facts. They can do twenty math facts in a minute, and we're like, all right, well, the goal is to get up to sixty per minute. And kids are like, well, I could never do that in a million years. I'm out of here. And we're like, it's not that's not a thing you do overnight. Let, let's show you how, and you use this chart to set these incremental achievable goals 
And what the kids learn is, oh, here's how I here's how I can structure my time so I can get better at something over time. And then more importantly, you're building up this massive history of success, right? Because every day they're achieving something. And these are kids who haven't achieved much historically. Hey, me just figuring out how to use the standard acceleration graph is a huge success for me. <laughs> I know, it's, it's, it's interesting. I've trained a lot of people on the chart and I've trained a lot of kids and it's much easier to teach kids the standard acceleration chart. They have no history, right? I show it to them and they're like, I don't care that it's blue, whatever. They don't, a lot of our kids don't even know what, they don't, haven't charted anything. So they're like, sure, it's blue. Oh, the, you know, the, the y-axis is a semi-logarithmic scale. Okay, whatever. Sure, I know where to put my dot. So the kids get it. It's much easier to teach them not fighting History it's, it visually it's aversive man because it's like yeah. i gotta be a brain scientist to be able to do this like no you know, you know what's really funny, when i and Lindsay developed it uh he ran through tons of research like on all kinds of prototypes of that chart and so we have some of the some of the old original ones and you should see it in black and white or green or red it's much more the blue is the is the friendliest but i i mean i hear you it's 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 just very different than we're used to using right well you know when, when we have people who come into this field from other fields uh you know, there's a one of my coaches at Hoglin Learning Center who's one of the directors there now, Jason Gill, who's an excellent prison teacher. He was an engineer who came into education. I showed him the chart and he was like, Yeah, I get it. Like it was, <laughs> got it. Like that was nothing for him. Of course. But if that's if that's not your background, if you're not in those kind of those harder sciences initially, yeah. it is new. It is different. It's not something we use all the time. But you learn you become fluent in it and it's like you you know it, you get it. It's it's not a problem. So listen, okay. Andrew. This has been, I, I, I'm so engaged by this conversation and I'm so disappointed that the United States hasn't, you know, not just the United States, but everywhere around the world hasn't embraced this. And I'm, I'm grateful that there's a school like yours that's doing such a great job trying to spread it. Um, how can people find out more about Morningside Academy, get in touch with you? What, you know, what do you need people to know here? Yeah, sure. So uh, we talked about the Summer Institute a couple of times, and that's a great place to learn this model. So you want to learn about behavioral education in general, all those aspects, direct instruction, precision teaching. Uh, every summer we host a two or three week summer summer institute, right? So we bring in, we double the amount of kids that are here for the summer. And at the same time, we bring in anywhere from 30 to 50 professionals from all over the country, all over the world, really. I know you were here a few years ago. And it's a kind of a deep dive into this model. You spend mornings in the classrooms actually practicing these things, direct instruction, precision teaching, and then you spend afternoons with myself, with Dr. Johnson, with other people who are teaching you all about this stuff. So that's like, that's always what we tell people first. You want to learn this? Come out in the summer, spend two weeks with us, or a third week if you want to stick around even longer. Um, that's every summer we do that in July. I think this year it's July 11th to the 29th. Um, so that's, that's the best way to get hands-on training right away. Uh, if you want to learn more about the model, I mentioned it earlier, but we just published about uh, about six months ago our newest version of the Morningside Model General Instruction book. Um, you can get that on our on our website. Um, if you go to morningsidepress.org, um, you can buy it there as well as we you know we publish probably thirty or forty precision teaching uh, programs. You know we we evaluate the curriculum that's already out there. You know our goal is to use what's already out there in the market make it work for us, but there's always times where we can't find what we want, so then we design it. And we've got teachers here who are excellent instructional designers. They design a lot of the programs. Uh, so a lot of the stuff that we use for precision teaching, we've developed ourselves, and then we have it for sale up in our uh, Morningside Press. Uh, what if somebody wanted to bring the model into their school, their district? How do they get in touch with you guys for that? Yeah, That's they, something you do, right? Yeah, for sure. So they email me. At, I'm just Andrew at morningsideacademy.org. If you go to our website, there's a link on our page for something called the Morningside Teachers Academy. And that's our dissemination wing. 
right? So we kind of have these two entities at Morningside. We have the laboratory school, which is here in Seattle, serves 85 so kids. And we're constantly figuring out what works, right? What are the best procedures? What are the best practices? What are the best curricula? And when we get the data here that matches the data that is reported in the, you know, the, the initial studies in those programs, then we take it to people around the country. So we've worked with 140 something schools across North America, um, big urban districts like Chicago Public Schools, Philadelphia, Seattle schools, small learning centers, really a, a wide range of schools implement this model. I'm like, right. you know, if, there's a, if you're a school and you doubt it, bring them in and just pick one classroom, right? Just pick yeah. a classroom, watch what happens. I'm like, let's not force it on anybody. Let's reinforce them into it. You can use it. You're going to see it works. And then you're going to want to bring it everywhere. Yeah, that happens a lot. I mean, it's it's very common that like one teacher will get hooked on this and start it. And next thing you know, I'm hearing from a special ed director or, a, you know, just the superintendent of schools. Like, hey, we want to do this with everybody. You know, the, the kids in this, like, in this tier two special ed class are outperforming the general education kids. What's, what's going on in there? Right. Well, so, so you have to hope- get it started and you, you'll, you, you're going to be amazed by how quickly kids can make gains. And more importantly, how happy kids are, right? They're happy, engaged learners. They feel good about school. And that's what, you know, that's and happier teachers. And happier teachers. Yeah. <laughs> right. so everybody's happier and happier communities because what's more important than education for reducing poverty, increasing quality of life, and you know, improving mental health and all the other things that come along with good education. So um, Andrew, it's been remarkable having you on here. Uh, anybody that's listening to this, man, if you have a contact with DOE, please send them this episode of the podcast because we really need this to happen at the federal level so it trickles down, man. We shouldn't have it just at 140 schools. It should be in 130,000 schools across the nation. Everybody should be exposed to this. Andrew, thanks for coming on, brother, and uh, we'll talk to you soon. Hey, Thank you, Andrew. Right. Nice meeting you. Appreciate it. There are a lot of well-meaning educational leaders who bring crisis management systems into their school or district, only to find that staff are afraid to use the procedures, use them incorrectly, use them too little, too often, or too late. If you want staff who are confident in their ability to prevent, de-escalate, and physically intervene at the right time, in the right way, then your school needs professional crisis management. Founded in 1981 by a behavior scientist, professional crisis management is the safest, most effective, and humane crisis management solution in the world. For more information, check out crisisintervention.com.